Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Hello, mate. How are you? I'm really good. Uh, great to see you both, and uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you back. I think uh, the last time we had you on, we were all in our first ever lockdown, and we did our webinar together. That was feels like ages ago. Yeah, yeah, about June, maybe July last year, but it feels like a long, long time. That really has just blown past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what have you been up to in your third lockdown? Tell us. Yeah, I've lost count. I've lost count of the <laughs> lockdowns or whatever, but. Um, you know, two very different experiences, Jake. You know, um, lockdown one, uh, which for us in the UK was March to essentially June, I guess. Um, it was the unknown, you know, because perspective is great, isn't it? Because you yep. look back on things. But at that time, you're in this sort of uh, unusual scenario. You, you've not been in it before. You don't know how long it's going to go on for. And I think so many people I speak to, patients, colleagues, friends, Everyone had this idea that they had good intentions and whatever, and then lockdown finished, and then you kind of went back into the mill. So certainly from a personal point of view, when we had lockdown three, again, which we weren't anticipating, and for us, essentially, it was January. On a personal level, I thought, I'm going to try and be as productive as I can, um, whatever. So, you know, two very different experiences. But thankfully, we're just easing out of it now, certainly the medical clinics, and the rest of the country probably in about another sort of four to six weeks. Brilliant. Sounds good. Now, for the people who, who haven't come across your work or, or, you know, your background, why don't you just give the, the listeners a bit, a bit of a flavour for who you are and, and where you came from? Certainly. So uh, my name is Tapan Patel. I'm essentially a medical doctor. been working in um, aesthetics, I guess, for about 20 years. Previous to that, I had a background in hospital medicine, cardiology predominantly, and general practice. And, you know, in the UK, as and when the aesthetic industry started evolving, probably around the millennium, I'd just come back from Australia, where I was doing some internal medicine, and um, started doing aesthetics in a very, very slow and very drip-feed manner. You know, a clinic here, a patient there. But over that time period, it kind of started to build quite organically at first. Then there was probably a period where it snowballed. And, you know, here we are in 2021, where it is by far and away my full-time job occupation and passion i guess yeah and you've had some um personal experiences in relation to covid which we'll get into a little bit later in the discussion but um how are things going with reopening your clinic i mean i hear there might be some changes coming down coming down the uh, pipeline with the way you're doing things and additional services that you're looking to offer yeah so that's an interesting one um I can't really say whether it was influenced by COVID because it was something on my mind anyway, but definitely the whole experience here has um, certainly uh, strengthened my resolve. So to cut a long story short, you know, when I look at aesthetics, one of my criticisms of the field, certainly in the UK, I can't speak um, of all the countries, but this is something that colleagues share with me, is that although 
those of us who do it strongly feel it's medical. You know, it's a, it's a it's another branch of medicine. The problem is the way a lot of clinics are conducted, we lose that clinical element. It becomes very transactional. It's the patient coming in saying, I want this, and the practitioner saying, okay, well, you can have this treatment, that treatment, and it kind of ends there. And what I felt for a long time is we're missing a lot of opportunities here. Um, so a good example, for instance, would be the patient that comes in for a little bit of fat reduction, isolated fat reduction, be it with injections, be it with cryolipolysis. And when you examine some of the patients, actually, it's not isolated fat reduction they need. They need to overall um, lose weight. You know, uh, They're actually overweight. They could be obese, whatever. And so what happens is the clinics will just tell them, you're not suitable for this treatment. And I think it's a really missed opportunity. So essentially what I'm getting at is there is a real idea that aesthetic clinics are very well placed to be able to offer patients a really holistic opportunity here, talking about lifestyle, be it exercise, nutrition, stress management, sleep, um, any type of substance abuse. And when you do that, what you find is that the results you get from your aesthetic treatments is enhanced. So it's not a question of cannibalizing the things that we already do. It's about making the things that we do look even better because the person starts feeling as well as uh, feeling as good as they start looking. Mm. Yeah. Now, why don't we go back to what David alluded to about, you know, your experience with COVID itself. Uh, when did you get sick again? Was it April last year? Do you know what, mate? It was, I, I think I probably caught the infection a year ago today. Okay. Today, because, happy anniversary. Uh, I, thank you, thank you. It's, 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 I don't know how to celebrate that, how I feel about that. But um, look, I exactly a year ago today, on the equivalent Wednesday, is when I told my staff that we were shutting down. And we did that ahead of the national um, lockdown announcement. And one of the reasons was, as you know, Jake, I've got lots of colleagues in Europe. And some of my colleagues from Italy actually phoned me and said, listen, what are you doing? Yeah. Have you closed? I said, no, there's no need to close. And they said, look, forget what you are hearing. This is worse than anything we've seen. You need to close your clinic. You need to go home. You need to put your team. Um, they, we didn't even have this word furlough at the time. Okay. Yeah. They just said, you need so things like isolation, furlough, restriction, it, no one was using them. But when I told my team, Initially, they were like, well, why are we closing? Nobody else is. Yeah. But, you know, the kind of people that were calling me, I, I trusted them that, you know, this advice was you know, full on. On the Wednesday, we closed. On the Saturday, I developed quite severe symptoms of COVID. And initially, it was just, you know, fever and body ache, but very, very severe. Um, the PM announced the, um, the closure, I think, the next day or maybe on the Friday. I can't remember. My memory is a bit hazy, as you can imagine. And then a week later, I developed a very um, significant and quite severe pneumonia. Certainly, you know, those doctors who have a radiological background, um, the x-ray was pretty much white um, yeah. um, in the lung basis. So that was um, unexpected, to say the least. Um, and it was, I don't want to use a cliche, I don't want to use hyperbole, but it was definitely a, a life-changing or life-defining moment for me. Yeah. yeah. And that sort of forms the background to this podcast because I always thought that when you'd come on and do a podcast of us, we'd talk about injectables or <laughs> yeah. MD codes or something cool. But um, 
I think you know having seen your your um, sort of various things that you've done on Instagram, particularly over the last two or three months, and chatting to you, we pl- we tried to plan a podcast last year and sort of didn't happen for various reasons. I think we were both super busy after our first lockdown ended. It yeah. sort of seems natural to talk about you know what you mentioned before about trying to blend wellness into aesthetics. It's something that actually David and I speak about very regularly, uh, pretty much every day actually about, you know, exactly what you said. Are, are we missing a trick? Are we are we doing the right thing? Are we uh, trivialising aesthetics as well? Are, are we sort of just scratching the surface here? So, yeah, that's sort of the background to this podcast is everyone's wondering where this is going. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah, and you sort of raise an interesting point, um, Tapan, about missed opportunities and talking to people about what's going on at a holistic level in their life. And I uh, and I think that, you know, you and Jake can probably speak on this, is that I think a lot of people that come in for cosmetic treatments, a large number of them, they want something fixed instantly. You know, they want to yeah. get rid of some wrinkles or they want to get rid of some fat. Well, rather than looking at their lifestyle, they go, I'll just get a treatment to get it done or I'll get surgery. Is there a, there a challenge there, do you think, to change people's mindset into saying, well, if you want to change your life, there's actually going to be a process involved and it's not going to happen in two seconds and it's not going to be comfortable and you're going to have to put in some effort. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, you've hit the nail on the head. And this is this is the problem. You know, we live in an instant gratification society. You know, we've gone from a time when we'd have been happy for a shop to be open at the weekend to Amazon Prime, where you can click a button and have something delivered to you the next morning. <laughs> and if it doesn't come the next morning, it's a source of irritation for people. I've heard actually people kick off and say, no, I ordered a book last night and it's still not here in the morning. <laughs> now, you know, we don't when, have that luxury in Australia yet. It's not as good. Eating, right? <laughs> when you've got that kind of mindset, it is a battle. And there's so many reflections on this. And so the first thing to say, Jake, um, in answer to a point you raised, I couldn't be happier talking about the subject matter that we're going to be talking about today. Because don't get me wrong, and this is something I just want to clear up because a lot of colleagues have asked me, does this mean that you're moving away from aesthetics? Does it mean you don't want to inject? Absolutely not, right? You know, I love aesthetics, just for the record, I love injecting, but I just feel it's not the only tool in the kit. It's not the whole jigsaw. There's other things we can do. There's other things we should be doing that just make those results better. So, you know, in, in, in no particular order, an answer to, you know, what David was saying, I think what happens is you're absolutely right. People come to the clinic because they want a solution. And gone are the days when doctors and practitioners were the holders of knowledge. Because, you know, go back a few years, go back into the 50s, 60s. You went to your doctor because you wanted to be um, told something. Now, in this day of information overload, people armed with a decent, you know, um, Wi-Fi connection and a laptop can find out a lot of knowledge on their own. So I don't think anymore our job is to teach people or educate. But I think what really we're much better at doing or we need to get better at doing is affecting behavior change and also setting those expectations. So what you say is spot on. And, you know, somebody may want to lose weight and they may have identified that actually they're bored of exercising, they can't be bothered with dieting, they want a gastric band or they want an abdominoplasty or they want liposuction. But reality is, is that the reason they have given up on their lifestyle measures may be because they didn't have the right instruction. Now, you know, there's a lot of concepts I want to talk about, but if you go back in time, you know, in, in all countries, we talk about healthcare, right? We, we talk about healthcare models. 
But in reality, when do you really see the doctor? You see the doctor when you're sick. You go there because you have a need. You, you go there because you've got a headache, back pain, rash, something that you need help with. So it's actually not healthcare at all. It's sickness care. Right? Yeah. Most people, I would say, and I'm definitely put myself out here, if somebody came to me fit and well and said, listen, I'm in great shape, um, but I want to be in the very best shape of my life, what could you advise me? I'd probably look at him and say, you know, you don't need this appointment. Why? Because he doesn't have something I can physically fix at that time. But I think we're moving into a time where the traditional restrictions on doctors, because we don't really get great um, instruction at medical school on things like nutrition and exercise, but I think that needs to change. You know, it really does need to change because it, it, the, the advice was so generic, move more, eat less. Oh, come on. That's just a waste of time. You need to start telling people to move more and eat less. <laughs> that, that whole appointment's a waste of time for them and you. So behavior change and actually setting expectations in the same way as you said, the same person who comes to us in their 60s with signs of sun damage, wrinkles, jowling, crepey neck skin, in the same way we have to manage them and say, we're not going to be able to restore all the things you want done in one session. You extrapolate that and it's the same advice we'd give patients who say, you know, I don't like this bit of fat around my midriff and I want it gone in one treatment. Neither of these things are possible. But once people are educated on that, I believe that, you know, we can start getting them to where we want to get them. Yeah. I just want to preface this for anyone listening. Neither of us are functional doctors. David's probably the most um, <laughs> wise when it comes to all of this kind of stuff. He's very, very into it. And it's kind of been interesting how over 113 or so episodes that we've sort of... I've broken, Come a little you, bit closer. I've broken you down slowly. Closer, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very, very slowly. Um, but uh, why don't we speak about your your own sort of uh, journey from, you know, being sick in COVID to, you know, the things that you're sort of thinking about implementing now and use you as the example. Because I know that you're okay, training for quite yeah. a significant event at the moment. Well, before, before maybe even we go to that, maybe a good idea to, to have a starting point of what your health was like. Well, exactly. Before you got sick. So, you know, what was your diet like? Because I think nothing's better than sharing a personal experience. So, sure. you know, what was your diet like? What was your sleep? Were you exercising? How stressed were you? You know, how often were you getting blood work done? Did you have any pre-existing medical conditions? Because I think that'll give people a really good idea of your starting point. Yeah, no, that's fair. So yeah, I'm very happy to do that. So look, I think the first important time point here is probably me... Um, just before my teens. So I was, uh, you know, quite an overweight child, not massively, but being quite short, obviously it magnifies, right? So I can't believe that. Um, I've never imagined you being overweight. Oh, you know, one day I would dig out childhood photos. <laughs> I was, you know, I was, I was quite spherical to uh, put it mildly. But, um, you know, what happened is, is that some of these things are cultural, right? So yeah. in certain communities, like I'm obviously from an Indian community, it wasn't viewed as anything other than, um, I suppose, cute is the word, you know, I think my, my mom kind of liked my build, you know, very, very chubby cheeks and, you know, quite round overall. And it was actually my grandmother who basically identified that I, you know, this wasn't a good uh, look for a child. And she got me really interested in just going out there and doing stuff. You know, I did a paper round. I said on a podcast the other day, it's hard to believe there was a time when you could let your kids out. I was yeah. probably 11 at the time on a bike at five <laughs> o'clock in the morning and you know, delivering newspapers around the neighborhood. Um, and then just sports wise, I was one of those people who loved watching sport, 
in my mind, I was really good at it. <laughs> in reality, um, I was, you know, below average, but um, it kind of induced that sort of desire to just stay in shape. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you hit puberty, um, you start getting interested in um, uh, being more attractive, I suppose, and you just kind of, you're more motivated. But what I would say from around then, so teens, literally up to my 40s, um, my thing was I tried to stay healthy-ish, which meant I ate what I felt was a decent diet. Um, of course, I had, you know, binges and junk uh, as and when I wanted. Probably the thing that let me down, David, in terms of what you're asking is I probably um, burnt the candle at both ends too frequently. So very hard worker, but I frequently like to sort of, you know, uh, do the party circuit as well. <laughs> so, and I, I think Jake's nodding uh, knowingly there, but, you know, very anyone who is watching this podcast who knows me would, you know, have seen that in action. But <laughs> what happens there is that it's fun at the time, right? And I have no regrets, but all the things that you mentioned, the sleep was almost inconsequential. So I didn't really understand uh, the importance of the sleep back then. And almost it became a macho thing. So the less sleep you could manage on, if you could be out in the bar till three in the morning and then get into work for nine, it was almost a sign of honor. And mm. it was kind of like you get the bragging rights. And it was foolish, um, but it was what it was. Um, so, you know... Um, I think alcohol, yeah, again, binging rather than just every day. Food, okay. I would exercise. I'd go to the gym. I'd jog. But again, it wasn't anything specific. It was just to try and... Basically, I had three suits, which varied in size. And as long as, you know, as long as I could fit into one of those three, it was okay. You know, when I couldn't really fit into the biggest one, I'd hit the gym a little bit harder. And when, the, when I was in the smallest one and I got my confidence, I probably just, you know, was a bit more indulgent with what I ate. So it wasn't very scientific, but it kind of got me through. The second problem I then had was chronic injuries. So knees, I've had arthroscopies and the meniscus removed from them both, um, shoulder injury. Um, and all this did is every time I got an injury, um, it would just put me back. And it's one of those typical things with, I think I see it more with men than women, that exercise became I wasn't interested in mild exercise. I wasn't interested in yoga or Pilates or stretching. It meant getting into the gym, going as hard as I could for half an hour and getting home again. If it was a run, no warm up, nothing. So of course what happens, you're constantly injured. You're constantly um, battling that. And I think you kind of get the picture that the motivation was there. The intent was there, but my execution left a lot to be desired. That being said, and as Jake said, you know, you couldn't imagine me being too big is because I hit it pretty well and I was never massively out of shape, but I certainly wasn't one of those guys who'd be very comfortable, um, you know, stripping off by the pool all year round because it would be very seasonal. You know, holiday comes up, you work for it. Holiday's over, you just, you know, rest back and, um, on your lifestyle a little bit. So then COVID hit and this was a real shock to me um, because for about a month, and I think it wasn't just a COVID. It was the isolation and being at home. And probably for about a month, I had, I would say, the most unhealthy passage of my life, I would say. You know, I was definitely drinking too much. Um, and by too much, I mean every day mm. and starting earlier and earlier. N not, 
I'm not going to say it was like a dependency. It was just a boredom thing more than anything. You know, if you're at home and you're not doing anything, the weather was nice. It just seemed reasonable to, you know, have a beer with lunch. Once you have a beer with lunch, it seemed reasonable to have a couple of glasses of wine in the afternoon. And that led to, you know, the bottle. So then what happens is your food choices are also compromised. Then what would happen is Netflix became a really big thing because there was nothing else to do. Um, We don't have your weather over here. So, um, you know, binge box sets on the TV. But what happens with that? Again, you're snacking, you're munching, you're drinking as well. Late nights, often, you know, those addictive TV sets that keep you up till two, three o'clock in the morning. So the sleep is completely compromised. And, you know, we know there's lots of hormonal disturbances and things that happen when your sleep's um, compromised. The offset of it was there was nothing in my wardrobe save a pair of very, very baggy shorts that I could fit into by the beginning of June. <laughs> I was the biggest I'd ever been. I'll put this in perspective. I was 26 kilos more then than I am now. 26? Six kilos, yeah. yeah. Holy yeah. crap. So I was a check-in bag, well, slightly more than a check-in <laughs> bag more yeah. than I am that's yeah. incredible. And, and to be fair, that's not a unique story. A lot of people said, you know, during lockdown and, and after lockdown that they'd packed on the pounds because they're fed up, they're bored, yes. they, they decided to give themselves a break and have a drink. And well, stress eating. Stress eating, yeah. And uh, It was stress eating. Not so much stress eating, David. I actually think it was boredom eating, you know. <laughs> yeah. It was just nothing else to do. And, you know, the reality is if you're at home all day and you don't have, you haven't taken the time to, create routines suddenly there is no breakfast lunch and dinner it's just the day <laughs> you just you, you walk into the kitchen eat whenever you want um and that was one thing and i suppose the other thing for me was i'd always equated exercise with going to a gym mm-hmm. so the idea of doing stuff at home just seemed crazy i thought how could you possibly recreate 30 weights machines and treadmills and ellipticals and bikes and a swimming pool in a small apartment so i thought let's not bother we'll just wait till this happens and i think that was the thing it wasn't a i'm never going to do this but i'll enjoy this for now and then i'll get back to it and and so we're now looking at by i suppose may i was the biggest i'd ever been but it wasn't that wasn't the main issue i was also the unhealthiest i'd ever been Mm. um i was struggling um with a lot as you can imagine you know 26 kilos more than your frame is used to carrying and I just remember this moment one day when I looked in the mirror, I didn't recognize a person staring back at me. And I thought, I have to do something about this. You know, it's just, and not, I'm not going to go on a diet. I'm not going to do something for four weeks or six weeks. This is just going to be widespread changes. Otherwise, yeah. I'm just going to be back here in six months. And can I ask um, kind of a deeper question, really? How did being ill and, and all of those things that you mentioned affect you psychologically? Interestingly, because I didn't see them as a permanent thing and I saw them as something that I was going to fix, it wasn't too bad. At this time, in retrospect, I can tell you, one of the effects of the COVID was I had, and some people who've had it will um, attribute this same thing, I had a lot of brain fog. Mm. So I couldn't concentrate very well anyway. I was okay watching TV, but if I had to do a meeting like a Zoom or anything like that, Within about five minutes, I found myself excusing myself because I couldn't follow complex discussions or anything like that. It wasn't an attention thing. I would literally just be lost. Yeah. And I know it was a brain fog thing because I don't have it now. 
Yeah. But I had it then. And I guess what I'm getting at is when you were sick and, and all this drama's going on, you're reading the news, your Italian doctors are texting you, etc. Did did you fear for for your life or or or, hmm. or for your health longer term or you know you just don't know until like you said you've got the the benefit of retrospect well i don't mind sharing with you when i i self-diagnosed the pneumonia before the chest x-ray um because i had a stethoscope and it was you know barn door clinical signs um but i would say there's three nights in a row where I genuinely, and this is without any exaggeration, and, and again, I've spoken to people who've experienced the same, I thought I was going to die. Mm. Very plain and simple. And I didn't think I'd see the morning. And there's no exaggeration. And the reason I, I say that is, if you've ever you know, gone swimming and you swallow some water and you've got to kind of cough it back out again, you know that it's very unpleasant for those few seconds while, you, while you're choking. But you know that once you've done it, you're going to be okay. Well, it was that type of sensation, but on air. Yeah. So... You know, I was breathing so rapidly, but if I took a breath, it almost made me gag. And and I just didn't really see myself managing the night. And I'd be okay during the day. It was always at night. Yeah. Those three days when I didn't think I was going to make it. And in that time, I can think of at least two or three people my age who sadly didn't make it, people who I know. Um, and they, you know, they had very similar symptoms. So they're but by the grace of God type thing. Um once I got over it, that aspect for sure played on my mind a little bit. Um, but I can't, the, the physical aspect of me recovered quite quickly. So it's not that I had to be um, completely mobile. I chose to be more yeah. than anything, you know, but it, it, I recovered from pneumonia rather fast. So I got it badly, but I recovered pretty quickly. It was only about seven or 10 days worth of being very sick. Mm. Um, but psychologically after that, Jake, you know, there was a lot going on. There was financial worries because the clinic was shut. There was long-term health worries because the breathing didn't ever kind of go back to what it should have done. Um, there was just family concerns. There's so many things to be worried about, but, um, I mean, you know, my personality, I'm a pretty sort of optimistic glasses half full kind of guy. So I really let that type of stuff get me down. But yeah, when you don't, feel good you don't look good you're not yourself mm. everything adds up and, and the net result you know i don't mind admitting to you you know um it wasn't great well i guess what i'm asking is because from that kind of rock bottom you know, point which you know most people can relate to if they felt crappy you can reflect on how bad things are and 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 have some sort of starting point to how you're going to you know prepare yourself and improve things so i, I guess i'm asking was that your spur to lose those 26 kilos and, and say, you know, I'm not going to go on a diet. I'm actually going to change my life. I think the spur was, um, I've been very lucky, you know, my, literally my best friend, uh, throughout my life has been my dad and he's always been there for me. And, you know, he's, he, he's currently not very well himself, but, um, he, he's a, he's a bit of a rock. And whenever I had big moments, you know, moving house, moving clinic, whatever, so even quite recently, we had to do some work. You know, my dad's sort of 77, 78, something like this. And, you know, he was helping me lugging stuff around. And I always thought, will I be as physically fit and active at that age as he is now? You know, I've got two daughters. And I thought, well, you know, when they're moving house, when they need a, a hand, am I going to be able to do it? I thought, I can't do it now. <laughs> forget, yeah. forget when I'm 78. I said, at 48, I'm not being able to do it. So that was the spur. It wasn't anything else. It was... 
how do I want to be for the rest of the duration of my life? You know, forget what's happened up to now, forget now, but moving forward. And, you know, Indian background. So I'm, I'm a high risk. We've got this in the family, but there's diabetes in the family. There's heart disease in the family. There's high blood pressure in the family. There's, there's a lot of, you know, premature death and that sort of stuff. So it plays on your mind. And I thought, well, I'm certainly not helping things. You know, there's things you can't do anything about that. That's just written in your genetic code, but there's things you can. And so that's, I think, why more the motivation went from being quite what I call short term. I'm, lo- I'm losing a few pounds so I can put on a pair of trunks and get into the pool to, I just need to be in the best shape I can for longevity. And, and that switch in motivation is probably why a year down the line, I've managed to stay, stick with the routine that I started a year ago, mm. well, nine months ago. Often people will say that the, um, the first step is the hardest. So yeah. I guess with that in mind, where did you start? Like, what were the first things that you that you sort of commenced doing to to change this lifestyle? Was it diet? Was it sort of you were full on from day one, or did you slowly start bringing you know more and more things and more and more changes as as time went on? Did you have, did you have a plan? Yeah, it's a good question. So as as, you, as I mentioned, didn't have really any access to any facilities. The gyms are all shut. But um, I signed on with a um, coach, like an online training company, and you know he gave me a little bit of advice on the kind of three things I needed to focus on, which is some form of daily exercise, uh, the nutrition, but the real game changer for me, David, was steps, just physical number of steps a day. Nothing I'd, I'd done it before and I'd seen the, the impact of it, but I'd sort of lapsed in that. So I was advised that I needed to start with about 12 or 15,000 steps. Now, to put that in perspective for somebody listening who doesn't understand the impact, the average person in Britain takes about 3,000 a day. Mm. Okay, that's the national average, 3,000. If I measured mine, but I wasn't actively trying to hit a target, I'd probably be at about 2,000. Because by the time I get from my flat on the train to the clinic, pretty sedentary all day and back again, it's probably about 2,000 max. And now I had to get to 12, then 15, then 17 and a half, and then 20,000. So I had to do 10 times as many. And what made it easy for me is I just decided to walk to work and walk back. Not easy because it's an hour and a half there, an hour and a half back. So that was one big change. It also really helped with something that Jake alluded to, the psychology. Because what I was doing is I was plugging into something useful. For instance, I started learning Italian. Um, just with an audio book. I thought you were going to say so, you're listening to Inside you know, Aesthetics, but <laughs> clearly not. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish. <laughs> but, um, that, that would have been next. Um, so, you know, I was listening to podcasts, listening to books. So that was the walking. The workout was something very simple to do in the flat. I'm going to be honest, I didn't think it would work. I thought, how can you just use a set of dumbbells and recreate a gym? But I was willing to give it a try. And then when... I could, I started doing a little bit of jogging as well. Nutrition-wise, yeah, there was some basic advice, but like I said, I've never been a very bad eater. So what it, but there was some real specifics here. I started weighing my food. Mm. I started weighing the portions. And that's incredible because what I thought was a serving of, let's say, peanut butter or porridge oats, both of which are very calorifically dense foods. And what the scale showed me, I mean, I was probably having twice or three times as much as I should have been for what I wanted to achieve. Yeah. And so these things, as just as you said, little, little changes. 
started making a big impact, but over time. Mm -hmm. So I didn't make widespread dramatic changes other than the steps. Everything else was just cutting back, adding a bit, cutting back, adding a bit. Um, a month down the line, I think I'd already lost about six kilos. Um, and then another month after that, I think I'd lost another four. So I'd lost 10 pretty early on. Um, and then there was just this, once you see the improvement, then it just spurs you to carry on even yeah. more. And we're using something like a, uh, like a smartwatch or something to track your steps. I think that especially for, well, I know for, from a man's perspective that, um, using things like MyFitnessPal and using things like the Apple Watch and things where you can actually, your Fitbits, where you can tr track your steps, it takes the guesswork away from it. It becomes like yeah. a goal that you've set every day for yourself and you can see it. It's not just guesswork. Because as you said, like, I think a lot of people are unaware of like how calorie dense some foods are. Like you can have like a teaspoon of peanut butter and, yeah. you know, that might be the equivalent of like half a chicken or <laughs> something like that in terms of, yeah. of, of, lean chick, of, lean, of lean breast meat and things like that. So just using those, the technology that we've got around us to help break it down and, and look, at it, look at it scientifically generally helps. You're spot on. I used all of everything you've just mentioned. So my investments were, I got a really good digital scale, which um, with a Bluetooth would just send the daily weight straight to my phone. So I could see like the um, fluctuations. Um, I got a uh, smartwatch, um, yep. Apple watch. It's the one I found that works for me. Um, I use MyFitnessPal. I found that a, a really good app to start tracking things. Um, the food scales. Um, and these things did make an impact. It's accountability. That's the thing. But I think the real learning point for me here was that things happen at three levels. I've been reading this book, you know, which I thoroughly recommend. Anyone who follows my Insta stories will know that it's a book called um, Atomic Habits. Um, uh, by James Clear. It's a good book overall for people who want to kind of really get out of a rut and start doing stuff. And he talks about this idea, which I think is really important, is that whenever you want to achieve anything, you have your goal. That's important. And the goal ideally is specific. It's not, I want to lose weight or I want to get fitter. It's, I want to drop 10 kilos in three months, or I want to run a 5k in under half an hour. You know, it's got to be a specific thing. Then you'll set up routines to get to that goal. So that's the second layer. So it's whether it's um, joining a gym and getting a membership or getting some home exercise equipment or learning how to cook healthy or whatever it is, that's the routines. But the most important thing, and it's a bit that was a big game changer for me, is you have to change your core identity as well. Okay, You yourself have to start believing that you are that end result person. So if we use that analogy of health, you've got to stop using your old beliefs. And so for me, for instance, you know, uh, I love sport, so many sporting heroes. I had to start asking myself, what would Usain Bolt do in this situation? What would, <laughs> you know, Cristiano Ronaldo do in this situation? If you're going out for a meal and you've been really, really good all week, you don't see the athletes just absolutely, you know, throwing all the hard work away just to gorge out. You don't, um, and with that, the next big thing happened is I developed a really, what a lot of people call an extreme routine, but it works for me. So, you know, it begins with a very early start in the morning, but a whole bunch of stuff that I do that just sets me up for the day. So the learning for me was, is that if somebody has tried for 30 years to try and get to a certain weight or a, a body shape or a fitness level or a productivity 
level, whatever it is, the fact that it hasn't worked is only a reflection on what was employed to get there was wrong, not the goal. The goal was fine. It's just that maybe the techniques needed to be altered. And that's what's given me the best perspective on how I want to try and help patients in a clinic now. Why do you think that so many people go on fad diets almost knowing that it's yeah. going to be a short-term thing and you know they do this cyclical thing, they, they go yo-yo back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's almost like, I don't want to be harsh on people, but they never learn the lesson that it's not going to work. They have to have, like you said, a longer-term yeah. goal. I'll tell you why, Jake. Very simply, it's the same reason people buy lottery tickets, okay? <laughs> it is, um, in, in a way... You buy a lottery ticket knowing you're probably not going to win, okay? But it's hope beyond hope because it goes back to instant gratification. What sounds more attractive? If somebody says, you can definitely lose the weight, you're going to have to do this much exercise, this many steps, this are the changes you make to your diet, blah, 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 sleep eight hours a day, et cetera. Or why don't you try this incredible diet endorsed by this celebrity from LA for four weeks, mm -hmm. People choose the latter because on paper, it's easier. But that's the problem. You know what? Sometimes they work, but even if they work, they only work for as long as you do them. And that's, so my big education point to the patients in the clinic now is when you think of a diet as something you go on, I'm going on this diet or I'm going on that diet, it may work. You know, people say, what's better? keto or paleo or low carb or high fat or low protein, high protein, intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, doesn't matter. They'll all work as long as you're in a calorie deficit. That's how they work. Yeah. Okay? There's no magic to it. Yeah? yeah. If you're on a keto diet, but you're eating 10 times what your body needs, you put on weight. <laughs> yeah. right? The fact that it's keto, there's nothing magic about it, right? Um, you can't drink bottles of olive oil and expect to lose weight. It's not going to happen. So all the diets work if they adhere to the principle of calorie deficit. The problem is when you stop them, and if you return to what you were doing before, you will end up to where you were before. So rather than thinking of a diet as something you go on, I get my patients to think about the diet. It's just the food they eat. And what are they prepared to do to ensure that they can have longevity? You know, if you're a parent, you've got kids, you can't feed them meal A while you're quaffing things that you've bought in a sachet for the rest of your life. That's not conducive to mental happiness. That, you that is not conducive to any um, sensible eating pattern. So this is what happens here, is that the more distant it is from your normal eating pattern, the less likely you are to adhere to it and be happy at the same time. Mm. It's funny, as you're saying that, my mind switches into aesthetic mode and, and I immediately think of people wanting their magic skin cream rather than investing in decent yeah. sun care, cleansing properly, you know, doing hydrofacials regularly and starting themselves on a retinol and all the boring stuff that kind of people <laughs> know but they just don't want to do. Yeah. Like people, like exactly what you said, people know that eating less and, and exercising more is going to work. I mean, you know, it's just obvious, but I don't know, people can't connect the dots. Oh. And, and, and to be fair, I'm going to sit here and kind of, you know, 
out myself, I guess. You know, David and I have mentioned many times that, you know, I was less healthy than, than I should have been. David was almost, you know, the model of exercise, almost sort of eating like a monk and <laughs> researching supplements and really doing it kind of to the nth degree. And similar to you, Tapan, you know, I got sick last year. I didn't have diagnosed COVID, but, you know, same difference, very sick and two young kids. And I just had this wake-up call of whatever I'm going to do, I can't carry on doing what I'm doing. Uh, yeah. And so David actually bought me um, some uh, personal training sort of vouchers with a, a guy that we both know. So I, I had accountability as a present. I'm, I'm going to have to go. <laughs> I can't sort yeah. of, you know, sort of procrastinate and not go because then I've got to say to David, hey, I've wasted your money. Um, yeah. And and I've stuck to it, haven't I? I've yeah, it's good. I've been there three or four months. Uh, I've certainly lost weight. I feel good. Um, funny enough, today is my first injury. I've sort of pulled my quadratus and I'm sort of limping around a bit with a bit of back pain, but feeling really good. And, and like you said, it's not a flash in the pan thing. This, this can't be a diet or a, a gym thing. This is a, a lifestyle commitment now um, because the goal is I want to feel better and be there for my kids and, and function better. I don't want to be in pain all the time when I'm injecting. That's the thing. And what happens is, is that the reason so many things derail is A, because they're not sustainable. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that our conscious mind, our prefrontal cortex, will always talk us out of it, right? So if you want to wake up in the morning, and I talk about this a lot on my um, uh, Instagram and my um, IG Live, the people who say, I'm not a morning person, I would argue most people are not morning people. The major- I certainly wasn't. I mean, I'm up at 4.30 every day, seven days a week. But man, left to my own devices, I wouldn't wake up till midday. Okay. <laughs> so this is something that I've worked at. It didn't come easy and it was a struggle. And, it, you know, I don't just like my sleep. I love it. And I would have no qualms about waking up at midday um, if I could. But now that I've adopted the second routine, I can't imagine ever not having this one because I get so much done between about five and nine that if I don't do anything else in the rest of the day, I still achieve everything I want to do. Now, it didn't come by accident. It didn't just, I didn't wake up one day and say, guess what? I'm going to wake up at five tomorrow. But I had to trick my brain, you know, so I had to get habits in. So things like it started off with using my alarm clock in another room, which meant I had to get <laughs> out of bed yeah. to turn it off. All right? um, and then once you do that, you're out of bed, having a pint of water next to it. So if you neck a pint of water, as soon as you get up, it's kind of refreshing. Having my gym kit already, so I didn't have to look for it. Because once you put it on, you may not work out, but you're much more likely to work out if you're wearing your gym kit than you are if you're still in your pajamas. Mm. Um, having my headphones charged so that I could listen to music. So I can't run without music. If the headphones aren't charged, I'm not going. So making sure they were always on charge, making sure my phone was charged, um, and taking out the barriers and obstacles to doing those um, uh, you know, healthy habits. So there are so many things that you know you, you sort of learn along the way um, when you're doing that. And the other thing I'd say to you is, you said something earlier about you know neither of us are functional medicine doctors, and absolutely, and in fact, the kind of medicine I really want to do moving forward is probably not even functional. It's more lifestyle. Mm. And there's a few learnings there as well that it can be quite an elitist or patronising attitude that doctors have to assume that the reason most people end up the way they are is because of choices. Sometimes it's not choices, okay? Um, 
I would say young parents with young children um, with low incomes, um, you know, struggling with finances. A lot of the things I've discussed, recreational exercise, eating well, are luxuries. They shouldn't be, you know, uh, but that's a political statement. But the reality is, if you want to eat really healthy, it's more expensive than eating junk. Yeah. If you want to exercise and do all of these things, sometimes you may not have the time. So understanding that's important. And the last thing is, it is a bit of a battle against things like the food industry. I'll give you an example. My daughter, who is now 17, she was going on an open day to one of the, now get this, to a medical school, right? At break, they serve biscuits. And she's got a little bit of you know savvy about her. So she picked up the biscuits, looked at the uh, food label <laughs> and went, I don't want to eat that. And she says, Daddy, I went out to the high street to go into the health food shops to buy something more healthy. And she, I, got, I picked up three health bars, three things that you think, if I eat that, it's much better than eating my biscuit. But when I read the label, I realized I was actually better off putting them back, going back to the university and eating the biscuits. Yeah. It was like much better. So there you've got something packaged to make it look like it's good for you. And these are some of the battles that our patients face. Even if they've got the right intention, even if they've got the motivation, there is a lot stacked against them that will derail them. And, mm. and that's where I think as an industry, as a profession, we can come together and actually offer some real practical advice. And that's, yeah. That's, yeah, that's another real interesting talking point. Yeah. And that's why things like the MyFitnessPal are such a great tool because you can pick up yeah. a product and 99 times out of 100, you can scan the barcode and it'll give you a macro breakdown. You can see how many calories are in it and you know whether you're on okay. track. But you touched on a really a really um, interesting point about, you know, young families and with kids and so on. But it's sort of at some, at some point, you know, if you aren't instilled with those values and those habits as a child, it can be really difficult once those totally. habits have formed to try and change them. So some people have just had a, you know, they've had a rough hand. They haven't had the, the proper upbringing or the education or the habits instilled in them when they were young. And it becomes really difficult <laughs> later on in life. Absolutely. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, and I'm not picking on medical health professionals because many of them are my, are my closest friends and obviously <laughs> one of them sitting next to me. Um, yeah. I found that over the years that some of the unhealthiest people I've met have been healthcare professionals. You know, the night shifts that you guys work, you know, a lot of them smoke, they take recreational drugs, um, you know, they don't really diet, it's like whatever. It, why do you think that is? You guys have got an idea about how bad things can go and about heart disease and strokes and mm. cancer and all that. Why do you think that with all that knowledge, still so many healthcare professionals just take their health for granted or don't don't heed the advice of, of people, well, the conversations we're having here today? Yeah, it's a great question, David. And first of all, I'd say I completely agree with your assessment there. So, I mean, there's been a time when I've gone out on a night out and in a mixed crowd of people. And if there's like 20 people there and 10 were smokers, all 10 were the doctors, okay? <laughs> and this is quite recently as well. Um, certainly at medical school, you know, um, the amount of drinking, and I, I'm including myself in that, um, but, you know, all-round behaviours were definitely very, very um, prominent in that thing. Now, I don't know, is it a cloak of invincibility because you're going to be studying that one thing that is about health and whatever? So you almost think this applies to them, not me. That could be it. Is it head in the sand? Is it kind of this 
I kind of know this is bad for me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Is it a chicken and egg situation? Do doctors adopt um, a, let's say, I'm not going to call it an addiction because in some cases it is, but sometimes do they develop the use of alcohol and uh, cigarettes to help counteract the impact of the job that they do? Um, does the job they do lead them to do that in the first place? I think there's a lot of complex questions there. I know there used to be this joke that the definition of an alcoholic is um, somebody who drinks more than their doctor, right? And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I remember so many times I would take a medical history until quite recently, I'm asking somebody about how much they drink. And as they tell me, I'm thinking, that's quite a lot. And then I think, but it's not as much as me, mm. you know, in all honesty. <laughs> and every time I did that, I thought, I need to cut down. But it wasn't until you really, in, that's the problem with intention. Intention is great. and Everyone has good intention. But until you commit it to a process, whether it's a written goal, whether it's a firm thing you want to do, there's nobody who is out of shape who doesn't walk past the window and say, I must get in better shape. So intention is easy, but it's how you then deal with it. So I think what you said about healthcare professionals is correct. The second thing I would add to that is something I said right at the beginning, we get very little instruction. Now I would say zero from my medical school days on, um, I would say relevant nutrition, relevant exercise. Uh, we might get told that exercise can be aerobic or resistance, and but that's about it. Probably one line is what we're taught. I don't know why physical activity, nutrition, stress isn't actually a massive module of medicine because I guarantee if it was, you know, uh, doctors would be better equipped to be able to help a lot more patients. Um, but, you know, this is something for the future. I can see there's a big movement here. In every country, there are associations of lifestyle medicine, functional medicine, um, and all of these things. So, this is not a lone voice by any means. And I'm pretty late to the party, if anything. There are people far ahead of the curve here, really getting good change affected in many countries. But it, that, that's the encouraging thing to see. It's funny. I remember even when I was a you know, junior surgeon, like first year in hospital and, and doing your ward round and, and you seeing what people are given in hospital to eat and they get given this sort of sad, cheese sandwich uh and jam roly-poly or, or yeah, whatever on highly and processed just, white bread yeah <laughs> and they've just had a major laparotomy and they're trying to heal yeah. their metabolism must be absolutely crazy they're they're trying to you know heal their whole body and then you know th that is what the health system is, is providing you know nutritionally let alone all the other things that we've mentioned it's yeah. just crazy We're talking about surgery it's about surgery when i was a cardiology reg in our canteen at King George's Hospital in Ilford, the only thing you could get 24 hours is a fryer. Yeah. Now think about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was the one thing you could get 24 hours was a fried English breakfast. Yeah, yeah it's, um, yeah. I don't know, it's, you know, coming from the NHS background, which is the UK health system, and obviously you did that tap in, you always kind of thought, this is the best it, it can do because it's cheap. Uh, and, and there's always that, you know, sort of balance of exactly what you said. If you can't afford organic chicken, well, you're going to go and buy turkey Twizzlers or yeah. whatever it may be. But it doesn't have to be expensive. I mean, you can eat healthily without it being ridiculously expensive. I mean, it doesn't have to be organic. I mean, no, you, you I just know. do what you can. You know, you can buy 
you know, free range chicken or you can buy, you can eat lean breast, you can, vegetables are relatively cheap. I mean, the meats are expensive. You can get, you don't have to eat everything organic. Ideally, yes, right? But I mean, it doesn't have to cost you a fortune. Well, this is the exact point. Where there's a will, there's a way. I think the thing is, is that there are loads of obstacles. And once you have that mindset that no matter what the obstacle, I want to help um, within this. So you're spot on. There is ways of budgeting your food. There's ways of cooking healthy. But a lot of this isn't out there in the public domain. So then what happens is, I think, and I, and I do totally agree with Jake, I've seen from my GP days, young families where, to be honest, it's easy for us, right? You can sit back and say, I'll spend two hours researching this, that, and the other. But sometimes a young parent with three children and they literally don't have two minutes with the best will in the world, it is actually a lot easier to just get some chips and uh, you know a, a pizza out of the oven than it is to cook a nice, healthy meal. So it could be time restraint, knowledge restraint, budget restraint, space restraint. There's so many reasons why um, it doesn't happen, but that kind of represents both the challenge and the opportunity, I guess. Yeah. I've got a question. Did you ever work on your mindfulness explicitly or did you just sort of stumble your way through this and sort of learn things by reading books or, or, or did you do any courses? Did you listen to any specific podcasts? Yeah. Combination of all of the above. Um, so, you know, it's a bit of a vicious circle. You don't know where to begin. To me, I always had this very, I suppose, gung-ho attitude that things like mindfulness, as I alluded to earlier, uh, yoga, breathing exercises, um, healthy eating, it was for somebody else. Mm. It wasn't for me. I was very much a fast living um, kind of guy and I didn't, I didn't really pay any attention to any of this sort of stuff. So even when people talk about, and bearing in mind, I come from a family where my father has practiced yoga for, you know, 60 years and he'd always try and sit me down and do it. And I'd say, it's not for me. You know, I'd rather go out and, you know, run or do some press ups. I'm not doing yoga. With mindfulness and whatever, to me, I can't actually now imagine how I managed to achieve anything in my life without it because it's become a fundamental part of what I do. To me, it's my... Um, system reset. It's what I need to do when, when you, you know, when your, your desktop is just covered in absolutely 100 open windows. And at some point you go, just close everything down, turn the computer back on and on, and then you start from afresh. That's what meditation and mindfulness does for me. Without it, I'm all over the shop, but I've only really got into it in the last couple of years, if that. It now forms the most important thing I do. So if you had to ask me, what's the one thing I have to do every morning? it would be that meditation, gratitude, and mindfulness little triple set that I yeah. do for 15 minutes. That's all it takes, 15 minutes. Yeah. With it, I can accomplish a lot. Without it, I'm all over the place. But yeah, where did I learn? Some of it from books, some of it from podcasts, some of it just intuition. Yeah. It's not difficult. It's just literally taking time to reflect, focus, and have some clarity so that you can plan your day. Yeah. And leading on from that, something that I think is plaguing particularly Western society and I guess in the wake of COVID and people feeling stress is that automatic movement into a flight or fight response where yeah. your whole body, you know, goes into the survival mechanism, as you alluded to, you know, your frontal cortex shuts down, your body sort of downregulates things like digestion, your anger and aggression gets turned up, you're not thinking clearly. 
your body releases, you know, tons of cortisol and you generally just feel like absolute nonsense, you know, when you, when you go through that sort of response, but people tend to go into that because they're on such a, their base level of stress and anxiety is, is so high that it doesn't take much. Someone cuts you off in traffic or you get an email that you didn't like, or you have a, a phone call or you're on hold waiting for something and it takes long. People just go into that. So have you, I mean, have you found that things like mindfulness help, help bring down your, your base level of anxiety and stress? 101%. And, and this, I can probably say quite objectively, not just subjectively, because I've been told this by uh, people who know me. Because you know, people have actually reflected that my mindset, my resting, um, I suppose, mood and everything has seems to be very different. Now, look, the problem with stress is, and you know, this is almost a topic for a whole different podcast, but it is such a ubiquitous problem. And by stress, I actually do mean chronic stress. You know, we all need stress. Stress is what drives most of us. If we didn't have it, we just sit around and do nothing. So stress is both a driver and a motivator. The problem with it is when it overtakes you and you can't deal with the thing that um, is motivating you. And that's when you're talking about, you know, the chronic stress response, the cortisol, the sleep disturbance. Some people reach out for stimulants. Some people reach out for other chemical health, whatever it is. Um, the problem with stress is it's very hard for the individual to recognize because it's not like... Um, a disease which has an obvious sign or a symptom. You can't plug into a machine. You can't attach yourself like you could do for your blood pressure or your blood sugar. You can't do those things and get a response that says, yes, your stress is eight out of 10 or nine out of 10. It's a personal thing. So first of all, people don't always recognize it. I can say from personal experience, when concerned uh, people in my life would tell me, you're stressed, I dismiss it. I'd say, no, I'm not. You know, This is me. This is what I need to thrive. But they were right. You know, I, I was stressed. Um, definitely the mindfulness helps. Um, it, it, if nothing else, by continuously resetting, that's the, you use that brilliant example. I do believe that the same people who bark at a colleague for something quite insignificant or uh, send a really angry email or, you know, get into road rage, sometimes the person getting into road rage isn't intrinsically an angry or aggressive person. There's just been a knock-on number of probably quite small things. And the net result is, is that they're just so highly strung on that day that they get into that road rage. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, all these things prevent those things from happening, but they are very useful just in terms of arriving at your journey in the right sort of state of mind. Class steps. What do you mean by mindfulness? Like, is is that um, just uh, sort of almost uh, thinking more positively, or, or what? What do you? What does it mean? It's a great question. Look, I think the problem with things like let's use a few words here: meditation or mindfulness. They have this connotation that you need to somehow sit in the lotus position on top of a mountain and, you know, be chanting Om for like five hours. And that's what I think is what puts people off. At its most basic, it's just awareness. I would often eat my meals with a phone in one hand, the PC opposite me, a bowl here, and I'm eating like this. That is the opposite of mindfulness. That is being in three different spheres and not actually enjoying any single one of them. Hmm. Neither was I doing any justice to the email I'm writing. Neither was I 
you know, listening to the phone call that was going on and neither was I enjoying my food. So mindfulness can literally just be when you're eating your meal, switching off your distractions and just enjoying it for what it is because eating should be a pleasurable experience, right? I think one step beyond that, meditation, which I think is even more powerful. And to me, I'll give you this analogy. I'm going to do a video on it on my um, website to explain it. You know, meditation for the (laughs) non-meditator. It's simply this. If anyone can equate to this, you've got a lot going on. You wake up, you know you've got a busy day. You've got so many things you want to do. Um, You've got about 20 tasks. You've done your to-do list, but just somehow you can't seem to get anything done. You you, you sit at your PC with the right intention and you go to work. And by the end of it, you've achieved nothing. Mm. Or you have a meeting, there's so much you wanted to do. And for some reason, your brain just feels all fuzzy. So the kind of analogies you give is, it's a bit like a stream. You know, when the stream is turbulent, you can't see anything. But then the waters completely go still and you can see the stones at the bottom of the seabed. So it's a little bit like with the mind. The way I look at it is this. In our minds, we've either got active thought and that active thought could be anything. You know, crikey, I've got to pay the school fees. I've um, uh, got the credit card uh, balance to clear. Um, staff salaries are coming up. I I um, haven't handed in my appraisal paperwork. Uh, all You've got all these thoughts that kind of pollute in many ways our thinking and make it very difficult to focus on anything. So the best explanation I was ever given was by an, uh, an Indian spiritual leader. And he said this. You can't actually create darkness. If you think about it, you can't create darkness. All you can do is take away the light. So if I want to make this room dark, I can't press a button to make it dark. What I can do is remove all the light sources. I can close the curtains, remove the electricity. It will be dark. Same thing with the mind. You've either, when you're thinking, your actual mind, which is the whole part of mindfulness, it's not actually there. So what you have to somehow do is remove all active thought. You remove the active thought you try and attain a bit of clarity. Now, for me, it takes about five minutes and it happens at five o'clock in the morning and I just sit on the floor and I don't do anything too sort of new age. You know, I'm not sitting there <laughs> lighting candles and, you know, sitting in the lotus position. Sometimes I'll be just sitting in a chair. I usually just stare out the window and just try and dump every stupid thought in my head that's kind of interrupting my ability to focus. More often than not, not always, and I'm still learning. This is something I've just started. More often than not, I I finish five, 10 minutes of that with that word, clarity, that then just allows me to take on tasks that before just seemed impossible. I mean, people who are watching this that know me know that a couple of years ago, I took too much on. People would email me. I'd either not get back to them or I'd, uh, you're, you're probably a recipient of some of this. You know, <laughs> you message me and you probably get a reply if you're lucky after a month. It was never intended. That was not me being rude or arrogant or anything like that. It, I just had too much on. Mm. And with that, I didn't know what to prioritize. I'd like to think I've got a lot better now. And it's not because I'm doing less, but I think it's because there's just more clarity. And when there's clarity, you become more productive. Yeah, a very long explanation, but I hope that makes no, sense. No, no, it's it's really good because you know it'd be very new for some people. I, I certainly struggle with exactly what you said. You sit down to do you know a task, and then you know your phone pings, and and then you read an email, and you sit there for an hour, and you think, "What? Well, what have I done? I've done nothing." Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. Uh, it's, I, mean, the- I think a lot of people could learn from that. 
Yeah. There's a lot of self-help books on that as well. You know, productivity, there's tricks. I do believe a lot of it, if you can get rid of the ego and accept that sometimes you need to trick yourself. Um, so what some people will do is, and I'll often do this, the most productive time I have is from seven till nine in the morning. I'll usually take my phone, silence it and put it in a drawer. And I just won't get it out. Um, I also close the um, internet browsers on my PC. So if I, if my goal that day is to finish a document or it's to finish something, I'll do it. You may have seen on one of my Insta stories, I talk about this other book, which is brilliant, called, um, I forgot who wrote it, but it's called um, Eat That Frog. Okay. And what it refers to is you always have something you need to do in your day that you don't want to do. It's mm. the thing you're going to put off. It could be the workout. It could be a shopping trip an email that you need to write to resign from your job, or, you know, some unpleasant <laughs> thing you need to do. The thing about eat the frog is make it the first thing you do, right? In the same way that eating a frog is unpleasant. So get it over and done with, <laughs> right? And then even if you don't get anything else done in the rest of the day, it doesn't matter. That wasn't me before. I'm the ultimate procrastinator. I could have led team GB in procrastination. So for me, <laughs> it would be, I really don't want to do this. I'll do it at the end. And I do all the low lying fruit jobs first doesn't achieve anything because those low-lying fruit jobs you could have done anytime right yeah so now whatever it is i don't want to do i make sure that's the first thing i need uh, you know i do i'll give you an example this morning i couldn't be i couldn't be bothered to write this one particular email but i knew it was a really important email um to do with a project that i'm working on i wouldn't say i couldn't be bothered it was i find it very difficult to do so i said it doesn't matter what else i do before this podcast i'm just going to finish it. That meant nothing until then. I'm not going to eat, have breakfast, nothing. That's going to be my reward. I do it. You know what? It took me five minutes. But if I hadn't done it, I bet it, I couldn't have done it in two hours at the end of the day, if that makes sense. It yeah. was a five-minute email. Yeah. So what is your routine like at the moment in terms of exercise? How many days are you training? Is it? A, I mean, I've seen the photos of your body. You, you look like a Spartan warrior. So I'm assuming there's some <laughs> resistance training in there. Um, what's, yeah. And what supplements are you on, if any? Okay, so I'll tell you. So essentially, um, I, I start the day at 4.30. And the first thing I do is I make sure I don't hit the snooze button. To do that, as I mentioned, I use some tricks. I put the phone away from me, get out of bed, and I make the bed. Two reasons I make the bed. There's, there's this study that shows pretty much every successful CEO, leader, politician, you know, they make their bed the first thing when they wake up. It makes it less likely you're going to get back into it. But also, again, when you go to bed, it's lovely to have a nice bed to go back to. So that, that's the three aspects of that. As soon as I've done that, I go to the bathroom where my phone is, turn that off, I drink a pint of water, and I weigh myself. Now, I only do that to track it. I'm not obsessive. In go up two kilos, down two kilos, doesn't bother me one bit. But I like to see what the trend is over like a 30-day period. Um, once I've weighed myself, I get into my gym kit, do, brush my teeth. I come out, get my coffee machine on and I do an Insta video. Now, the reason I do that is there's a lot of people who follow me in my Insta stories who are also starting their own personal self-development. And I've got a lot of messages to say they find that first motivational message of the morning quite um, inspiring. So I do it. For me, it's an accountability partner. I know I have to do it. So it doesn't matter if I want to sleep in or whatever. I've promised that I'm going to do a message at five in the morning. So it has to be done. Now, once I've done that, I'll spend the next 15 minutes doing a gratitude thing, just you know, writing down things I'm grateful for. I find that's a very nice way 
to balance mood swings, you know, um, because there's nobody on the planet who couldn't find at least three things they were grateful for. It doesn't matter literally what country you're in, what your status is, but we all have three things we can be grateful for. For me, it might be the same three things for 30 days in a row. It doesn't matter. But writing it down is a nice reflection. I meditate. Um, I do some breathing exercises. I found the breathing exercises, again, nice for overall health, but particularly since my COVID pneumonia, they've, they've been invaluable. That takes me to about 5.15, at which point I will take the supplements that you're talking about. So I take something called a, a pre-workout, and it's a combination of amino acids and caffeine. Um, first thing I will say, I strongly believe almost every supplement I take is mainly placebo. <laughs> i.e. if I didn't take it at all, I think I'd be fine. But it's a psychological thing. I like the ceremony of doing it. Plus, I've kind of got addicted to the taste as well. So it's another reward thing. So I like, I look forward to it. So I take my pre-workout. I take that with the Barocca multivitamin, um, vitamin D, which is not placebo. I was vitamin D deficient, which I forgot to mention at the beginning uh, yeah. before my COVID. I was like very deficient. Yeah. So I swear by vitamin D, which is probably the only thing I take, which I truly need. I think everything else is just pandering to my mind, but the vitamin D I would take. And then for the next half an hour, I'll take a bit more water um, and I will read. Um, and I'm always reading two or three different books on the go. It's just the way I've always been. I can't read one book and see it through to completion. I like to have two or three on the go and it just depends what mood I'm in. So it, it could be fiction, it could be, but usually it's not fiction these days. It's going to be self-development, uh, inspiration, business, um, biography, that type of stuff. Then about 5.30 is when I'll have my, uh, so 5.45, I'll have my first workout um, or usually only workout of the day. It doesn't matter whether it's a run or a weights thing. Um, they both take about an hour. Uh, if it's weights, I do it in my flat with some dumbbells and stuff. If it's a run, it's outside come back and then I'll have my protein smoothie, um, which again, I think I do need. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence that uh, I'm plant-based in terms of my diet. I never used to be, but I have been for about seven years. Um, so protein becomes a little bit harder to get. Not in pop down. It's very easy, but you just have to plan it a little bit more. So I have that. Um, and then even by now, it's still only what, about seven o'clock. Um, and then I will spend seven to nine doing all the admin I need to in the day. At that point, I'll either go to work if it's a work day at the clinic and the clinic's open, or if I'm working from home, I'll work on different projects that I'm doing. Um, but then the rest of the day, David, is very fluid. I might decide that all I want to do that day is um, watch a Netflix series if it, when we're in lockdown, or I might want to do some cooking and batch preparation of some meals or I might just go for a stroll. I've got to get my steps in because I'm on about 15,000 steps as well. So I try and get those in as early as I can in the day um, because what I don't want to do is get to eight o'clock in the evening and realize I've still got another 10,000 steps to do because that's one of my non-negotiables. How far are you walking? I mean, in miles or kilometers? Okay, so to do 15,000 is usually going to be about, give or take, about 14 kilometers. That's quite a lot. Yeah, it's quite a lot. 14K plus your normal walking, like just, you know, pottering around the house and that sort of stuff. It varies. Of course, if you run it, it's more because when you run, you take fewer steps to do the same distance. Um, it is a lot. 
And that's where I think I was going wrong all my life previously, because this was my mindset. This was a typical Saturday for me, even a couple of years ago. I'd go to the gym and go quite hard for an hour, really have a great workout, kid myself that I'd done something amazing, and I'd come home, and without any exaggeration, I'd spend the next eight hours on the sofa watching sport, yeah. thinking, I've already had my workout. Yeah. Well, guess what? No matter how hard I worked out, it was still an hour. It could be 300 calories I'd burned, 500, maybe 800, doesn't matter. The next eight hours, I was doing almost nothing. Literally, I wasn't even fidgeting. Now, even if I work out for 10 minutes, but I'm walking for most of the next eight hours, the net is still better than it was before. Does that make sense? No, 100%. So it's just about frequent movement and that type of thing. And that was a big mind changer for me, a game changer for me. I didn't, I didn't understand the impact of just frequent movement. Now, tell us about this crazy challenge that you're gearing up for. I've already done it. Are you, uh, really? <laughs> I, thought I thought it was the yeah, next week. Yeah. No, no, no. I've already done it. So what I'll do is I'll post a video up. But, so I'll tell you what happened. I've never been a runner. I was a kid at school who, if it was cross-country, I would either fake a note from my parents <laughs> or I'd just hide. You know, I, I'm not kidding. I, you know, massive school. Um, and I could just hide somewhere um, and just not do it. So cross-country running, that work, it wasn't for me. Then I joined the cadets at school. You had to run. Still didn't love it. Um, but I've never done big distance. The biggest distance I've ever done would have been maybe six, seven, eight miles. Probably not much more than that. So there's this ex-Navy uh, SEAL. A lot of people will have heard of him, oh, David Goggins. Yeah, he's a maniac. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a, yeah, he's, he's crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. but, and he's not for everyone. He's very much of that get down and give me 20 push-ups school of mentality. Yeah. So people who don't like that coercion are not going to enjoy his style of motivation. But his premise in one of his books, which is called Can't Hurt Me, is we only operate at about 40% of our capacity. And he's done these things where he's gone into supermarkets, found guys, and he goes, how many push-ups can you do? And the guy will say, 10. He goes, get down and give me 10. And when he's finished, he won't stop until the guy's done about 20 or 30, Right. The person thought he was done at 10, but David gets another 20 out of him. So he does this challenge and it's called the four by four by 48. So it was four miles every four hours for 48 hours. Uh, and in my case, it became the four by four by 48 at 48 because I'm currently 48 years old. Um, why did I do it? Well, I felt it was extreme enough to push me physically and it was definitely extreme enough to push me mentally. Mm. And for me, the mental challenge far outweighed the physical. Because, you know, with my knees and all that, I didn't know if I could physically do that much running. But it was that whole idea of knowing you finish and just a couple of hours later, you're gearing up for the next one. So it was last weekend. The first one I did was four o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. I'd only trained for a couple of weeks. I only decided to do it about three weeks ago. Um, and do you know what happened, Jake, is all the things I was worried about started happening, like little niggles. I thought the only thing that's going to stop me doing this is injuries. Mm. And unfortunately, the injury happened on, you end up doing 12 runs. And on the second run, it was little, like something in my foot, nothing big. So it wasn't like a, a torn muscle or something, but there was something hurting. I thought, crikey, is this, this is going to be embarrassing because I've already put it out there on social media that I'm doing it. I thought, Having said I'm going to do 12 of these, do I really 
cut out at run number two. Yeah. But, you know, it was great. Um, the hard bit was doing it in isolation because there was no one physically cheering you on or helping you. But Instagram was brilliant for that. So many friends and people I don't even know sending me messages. So you do it four in the morning, then eight in the morning, midday, four in the afternoon, eight in the evening, midnight, <laughs> four in the morning, and you keep going till the next midnight. And some of them obviously are harder than others. But I tell you, um, raised a fair bit of money for charity. The foundation overall raised well in excess of a million dollars. And on a personal level, you know, it really helped me achieve a physical and mental goal. Um, made myself, I, I think I saw you sipping on a Negroni earlier. Well, I don't know if it was a Negroni, it looked like it anyway. <laughs> that's exactly, that's exactly how I celebrated the end of the run. I made a Negroni and, uh, that's the first thing I had at the end of it. But oh, yeah, awesome. I'll put it, I'll put a little video compilation of all the runs on it because I think a load of my friends have said, you know, this time next year may not do them all, but we're definitely going to join you on a few legs of them. I so, think you should, yeah, um, challenge, probably repeat I think you should challenge Jake to do one of those, Tepan. Listen, can I say, you guys in Australia, you're missing a trip because David does it in San Diego. Yeah. And when I look at some of the footage, so beautiful. I mean, yeah. okay, the nighttime is the nighttime everywhere. Mm. But running in sunlight, running with nice weather here, it was miserable the whole time. It was cold. Um, it didn't rain, luckily, but it was either cold and wet, or uh, so cold and windy or cold and dark. So that was a, a bit of a challenge. But if I was in Oz, oh man, yeah, it'd be be a fair bit of fun as well. Yeah. Is your, um, is it a GoFundMe link or how did you get sponsored? Yeah, it's a Just Giving page. Is, um, is it still open? It is. It's on It's on my Instagram. It's on my homepage. It's just a little link there. People can click and donate and that'd be great. Yeah, more than merrier. Right. We as a podcast are going to donate to you and uh, we'll, oh, thank you we'll, very much. we'll read out the link again at the end for people yeah. to remind them. Very good. That's very kind. So, I'm curious as to what changes you have now made into your clinical practice in terms of what you're doing for your clients, what treatments you're offering, I guess your approach to consultation and advice you're giving. Sure. I think, and this is, this is where I really want to focus on the relevance because, so I, I tell you, I, I alluded it to it earlier, but let's look at my area of specialization, which is the face. So for a long time, what would happen, David is, and I was, one of the people doing this, but there was this idea that somebody would come in with jowls or a double chin. And we were trying to fix that with our skill set and the tools we have. So the idea was somebody would come in and say, look, I don't like this jowl. And we'd say, we can use dermal filler and we can lift here and we can lift there and we can add here. Yeah, you can. But what are we really doing? We are taking a problem and we're shoving it under the carpet. Right? That's really what we're doing. We're disguising it. If somebody's got a jowl here, there might be just a pure age-related reason they've got that. It could literally just be changes in the face, and that treatment that I just suggested could be entirely appropriate. But for a lot of people, it's a marker. When somebody's got excessive jowling, let's say in the side of the face, under the chin, they may be overweight overall. And if that's the case, I was doing them a disservice by not at least having a chat over their overall lifestyle. Now, at the end of it, they could turn around and say, thanks for all that. It's not what I'm here for. I just want you to improve this. And I'd tell them that, look, if I treat you, I'm not taking away the underlying cause. I'm disguising what you don't like. That's all I'm doing, because I'm not even dissolving it. I'm disguising. Now, 
when I explain this to patients now, and I've probably, as since lockdown, only had the opportunity to do it for a couple of weeks, but already the interest is huge, probably helped by the fact that I've mentioned on my social media that this is my new approach. So people are already aware that they're going to be having this discussion. But in fact, people are coming in and saying, yeah, that makes much more sense because, you know, when it's not done well, if somebody's got, let's say, a lot of fat in their face and you put a lot of filler in, they just end up not looking great. They end up looking too full and maybe the jowl doesn't stand out as much, but overall, the look isn't good. So now what I do is I offer them a multimodal treatment plan of which injectables will, def- injectables, pardon me, will be a part of it for sure. But I might suggest that we spend two or three months bringing their overall weight down by five to six kilos, whatever I, I feel they need to do. They may or may not decide they want to do that. We might use some form of, you know, we've finally got Belkyra or Kybel, I don't know what you call it over there. Belkyra, um, yeah. Belkyra. So we've got Belkyra. So that's coming out now. It adds another modality to what we can do. Um, but you, you'll be aware that I'm part of a TV series called 10 Years Younger. And two years ago, the idea came to me that a spin-off or a side thing from that isn't just 10 years younger, but 10 years better. Because really, who wouldn't want to actually, as well as looking younger, who wouldn't want to feel better? And when I looked at some of those contributors and they were coming in with their lifestyles, and when we gave them just little bits of advice, it was very, very impactful. So this is where we're getting at, helping people who are seeking that help. That doesn't mean if somebody came in and said, look, I know my lifestyle is unhealthy and I don't want to do anything about it. All I want is some Botox to get rid of this line here. Fine, we can do it. You know, I'm not going to exclude somebody just because they don't want to follow <laughs> all the instruction. But I do feel it's incumbent on me as a healthcare professional to at least be able to offer that. Um, and that's that's where we're going, integrating it into that pathway so they get the benefit of all of it. Now, in my case, I know enough about nutrition because I'm doing two nutrition diplomas. I did a diploma in lifestyle medicine and now I'm doing diplomas in nutrition. So I feel comfortable offering that advice. But if I didn't, I would simply bring on board somebody with that skill set to be able to offer it. I yet don't feel equipped to be able to offer the advice on exercise. So I've linked up with some trainers online who can, you know, who I can outsource that to. But it's about getting all of that expertise and presenting it to the patient. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, at least here in Sydney, uh, you know, the, the clinics that are around, you, you either have aesthetic laser injectable and skin clinics. Yeah. Or you have your alternative medicine, massage, uh, mm. you know, whatever, Chinese medicine, Reiki. They never seem to mix uh, at all. In fact, it's like oil and water. They almost seem to just, you know, live in two separate realms. You. And I'm, I'm sort of wondering how, yeah, how, how, we, how it could be blended better. Yeah, but I think what you've described there is two very different concepts. And I completely agree with you. I've seen this. In fact, what happens is, is that the mindset of the person who has a real belief in things like all the natural stuff, you know, the, you know, whether it's the sort of um, Ayurvedic or Chinese traditional medicine or that sort of stuff, they tend to not be particularly keen on things like Botox, soft tissue fillers anyway. Okay. That tends to be a bridge too far for them. So um, it's, understandable that those 
type of things don't tend to mix very well anyway. Mm. But I think what I'm talking about here is integrating it. So somebody asked me the other day, well, look, if you are offering weight loss management, but everything you're doing is just advice, why should somebody actually come to your clinic environment in the first place? Now, it's, this is where I drift a little bit from lifestyle medicine principles, because that's all about not using medication. But I believe if you need to use medication, use medication. So, you know, you'll be aware, for instance, that um, I don't know what you call it in, um, uh, in Australia, but there are uh, diabetic drugs, um, uh, you know, semaglutide, liraglutide, like Saxenda, for instance, mm -hmm. which can be used to help people lose weight. Um, so these are now officially licensed for people who, let's say, find themselves with a certain BMI or a lower BMI and a risk factor. It's on label to be used to reduce the weight. Now, that is a good incentive for somebody to come into the clinic environment and get that um, uh, prescription medication. In the same way, I think it's all those, everything we do, I consider it type of lifestyle. So if I want to look a certain way, if I don't like my frown lines and I don't like my hollow cheeks and I don't like my double chin, all of these things I want help with. And somebody said to me, well, not only can I help you with the outward signs, but I can help you get a better lifestyle, which will probably extend the impact of those results as well. I don't, I don't see what's not to like that, you know, certainly. And, you know, maybe you'll invite me back on in a year and I can feed back to you uh, what the experience at one year has been. There's nothing I've seen at the moment that makes me think that there's any issues here. It's not for everybody. There'll be some people who will stop me and say, thanks for that. I'm not here for that chat. I'd just rather have the injections and be gone. And I'm, you know, I'm open to that. Well, I think the powerful thing is that you're living it you've had your own journey, you're, you're putting it out there, you're doing some diplomas to, you know, qualify yourself. And so yeah. you're sort of living it and, and, and you can say to people, well, I've done it myself. So, you know, that's quite powerful, but yeah, I'm trying to imagine some of your patients. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's just, you know, a paradigm shift. I think that the more people are aware of it, the more people like yourself tap in, that it's sort of getting that message out there and leading by example, people will follow. It's just a process. Yeah. It's it's time, um, and I think that you know we live in this this world now where information is so accessible. We can tap into Instagram and see the journey that you're on and, and what's happening. I just think it's every journey begins with the first step. Yeah. Do you think yeah. um, it's kind of more of a, a deeper question? Do you, you know the, the aesthetic industry is is sort of come a, not come around as a mistake but it's almost come around as a, a bit of an evolving specialty and we've sort of added things to it and now we're at a level where we understand facial aging and anatomy and you know have specialists like yourself and global key opinion leaders it's it, you know we sort of injectables is a specialty within itself now but how are we going to sort of unscramble that egg and and sort of make it lifestyle medicine not aesthetic medicine it's a fantastic question. Um, I did a um, little um, video on this just quite recently that to me, aesthetics, certainly in the UK, and I think in most countries, evolved very spontaneously. You know, certainly in the UK, around the millennium, with the advent of Botox for cosmetic indication, um, and then the first HA fillers. I remember a time when there probably wasn't more than 10 people in London 
doing these treatments. And there probably wasn't more than about 20 nationwide. Now I think there's more than 5,000. So we know that from then to now, there's been a massive, massive explosion. But I don't think it's gone on a very structured path. To, to your case in point about clinics that have different therapies and they have a bit of beauty, it's not a very defined field, okay? But then not all fields are. You know, if you take traditional medicine, cardiology is very defined. Respiratory medicine is defined. Endocrinology is defined. But sometimes a patient's condition could be rheumatology, it could be orthopedic, it could be neurology. You know, there's, there's overlaps of those fields. In the same way for us, I think that if you say that the field is not injectables, but it's aesthetic medicine, and within aesthetic medicine, injectables is just a um, tool, then in the same way, the whole concept of uh, weight loss management, I think fits quite nicely in that if we want it to, yeah. right? We have tools there to do it. Um, I think it's appropriate. If you run any type of, let's say, fat loss treatments, be it cryolipolysis or injection lipolysis, you know that the vast majority of patients who come to you are probably inappropriate for small amount of fat therapy. They need a global reduction in weight. And that's that's your target uh, patient population. I'm curious to know what your consult sort of looks like. Have you had to extend the time? Uh, are you, you know, do you literally have some scales in your room? Like, what does it look like now? It's a great question. So my consultation time has always varied from about an hour at its longest to just before I started all these concepts, about 30 minutes. Now, with all things, we always learn, we get more efficient at doing things. So the first time you start, yeah, I'd gone almost back to the hour. But then you realize there's a lot of things that you can do that save time for both you and the patient. So there's a lot of patient information that can be pre-filled. You know, you don't have to sit there and ask them absolutely everything. That's what takes a lot of time. Mm. Okay, So a lot of the information can be pre-filled. You can be looking at it before they come in. If you're in the kind of setup where you have an assistant, um, a healthcare assistant, nursing assistant, anybody who can take the patient's height and weight uh, and metrics before they even come in, that saves a bit of time as well. But really what takes a long time is explanations. And I rely a lot on printed PDF type, uh, you know, written things that I can send to them uh, to supplement what it's been told in consultation. But at the moment, the sweet spot for me is about 45 minutes. Yeah. Okay. So 45 minutes to assess, diagnose, make a treatment plan. And you know what I tell them? This doesn't have to be your only consultation. This is a journey. I'm going to see you in two weeks, let's say for your first treatment, what a review. We can talk more stuff then. You don't have to give them everything you want to tell them in that very first meeting. It, you can drip feed things and review things over that journey. But what has changed is they're going to be seeing a lot more of me. So instead of maybe one consult and two treatments or three treatments a year, it could be once a month or once every two months. And patients like that. They like that sort of um, interaction, assuming that geographically it works for them. Yeah. Now, sort of finalize uh, or final topic, if you like. You mentioned your TV program or, or the program that you're part of 10 years younger. Uh, yeah. I definitely have seen parts of that. And, um, you know, you work with you know, beauty therapists and, and hair people and, and all sorts of things. But 
what's interesting about that program is, it, and you know, advanced injectors really understand the psychology of patients now. It's it's not just about, like you said, wrinkles and lines. It's about translating how does someone look to to to, to make them feel better. So, yeah. can you just touch on sort of maybe I don't know an example of 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 how you've sort of holistically treated someone to make them feel better rather than just look better? It's a great question. So first of all, it was, it's been a massive, massive privilege to be part of this program. You know, it, it, it came by rather fortuitously. You know, I was away in Dallas, I think, and one of my team said, listen, there's a TV crew. They need to have a chat with you, um, but it needs to be at this time, which where I was was about three o'clock in the morning. I said, okay, we'll do it. And we had this sort of uh, FaceTime call and they said, okay, you know, we want you to be our expert. I didn't know what to expect. And series one, which aired around this time last year, ultimately, I think we are, I think there's a lot of education that comes out of this, um, both for the patient that comes through, the practitioners that are dealing with them, and then the audience that's watching it. It's like a, a, a three-way um, learning thing. For me, it really showed me just how much some people battle. You know, the best consultation in the world, Jake, we don't really get to know what's happening in someone's life, okay? When they're sitting with you for half an hour in the consult room, they can tell you a lot about themselves, but this time we've got TV crews following them around their house and they're really sending us a lot. And when people have been battling um, chronic uh, illness, cancer, um, bereavement, abuse, all of these things, it goes without saying that it really plays on the way they look. And it's a vicious cycle. Again, they have a lot of bad things going on in their life. It knocks their confidence. The confidence gets knocked, so they take less pride in their appearance. And I would say what was the most moving thing for me is the sheer difference. I can't even put this in words. The same contributors that were walking in, shuffling their feet and looking down at the floor, not almost having the confidence to make eye contact. Six months down the line, when they're coming in just for a chat or a review, it's literally like a transformed mind. Forget the body and the face, that is a given. But that mind, the, the, the vitality, the vibrancy, the energy, it's, you, you, you couldn't make it up. So I think we understand that actually it's not just the treatment. They are not more energized, and happier and more confident because they've got six mils of filler in their face or you know 30 units of Botox. That's not what's done it. And there's no doubt that, as you said, it's the contribution of all the team, the improvement in their hair, uh, the makeup skills, their teeth often, the, the way they dress. But I think it's that kickstart that many people needed to break that vicious circle. Now, what's interesting for me is I've stayed friends with many of the contributors. And my, not worry, but my feeling was always when the TV crew is gone, when the lights have turned off, does that person go back to their old way of living? And a year down the line, when I see them, will they look exactly like they did before? And guess what? No. Okay. Everyone I've met so far from the show, it's been a really good um, boost to just get them onto that ledge they needed to be to actually carry on. And so one of the things we're looking to do at the clinic is recreate that just in the way of our journey by yeah. you know actually working mm -hmm. with 
colleagues who specialize in makeup and hair and fashion and saying, look, when you come in, if you are the kind of person that needs that boost, you need that kickstart, well, we've got the team that can help you. And it doesn't always have to be about a TV show. Every colleague watching this podcast who has a clinic can think about things along these lines. And I think it's a very nice way of doing things. It takes a bit more time, takes a bit more effort, but it's very rewarding. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. might sound like a bit of a bold statement. I'm curious to see if you agree, but reflecting on exactly what you just said, I think aesthetic medicine is um, necessary, but obviously it's optional. And I think that we, you know, doesn't matter whether you're doing skin, laser, injectables, whatever, surgery, you're giving someone the the tools to rebuild their confidence, uh, not just for themselves, but for their relationships, thrive at work, thrive in life, uh, the relationships with people around them, uh, just their communication skills. I, I really believe in that, but, uh, but I think a lot of injectors themselves don't even realize what they're doing uh, by doing that. But, you know, it's almost as if it becomes a superficiality. Like you said, oh, I'm here for my frown lines today. Okay, here's 20 units of Botox. Thanks very much. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. You hear it all the time. In England, certainly, I don't know what it's like in Oz, but in England, a lot of patients will actually say at their first consult, they'll come in quite tentative. They'll express that they never really considered they'd do something like this, but now they're here. And then they'll look at me and say, but do you think I'm just being vain? Mm. And I've been asked this so many times. I have a perfectly rehearsed answer for this. And I say, look, if this is vanity, everything you do in your life is vanity as well. Because look, how many times do any of us say, do you know what? I'm going to go out today. I'm not going to bother combing my hair or doing anything with my hair. I'm not going to wash my face. I've got clothes covered in mud and dirt. I'll put those on and I'll walk out of the house, you know, with, um, no one does that, right? Whether we educate ourselves, whether we, uh, go for certain jobs, whether we groom ourselves in any way, we do it because it gives us confidence and we're just trying to further ourselves. And the aesthetic treatments that we do is just a manifestation of that, you know? Um, now does that person fundamentally change because they've got a smoother forehead? No, but if it's something that they're focusing on when they walk past the mirror, if they can't see beyond the furrowed forehead, if they can't see beyond the sunken cheekbones or the deep pier troughs, and we can eradicate that, they can then have with renewed confidence, the ability to move on and focus on something else. Mm -hmm. So I've seen the life impact changing of these things. You know, we all have, it's, it's not just me saying it, and it can sound like we're trying to justify our field. And I don't, I don't feel the need to do that anymore. No. Sometimes even colleagues, medical colleagues who do what could be considered more essential medicine, and it is more essential medicine. Sometimes they dismiss what we do or they don't understand what we do. But there's no doubt that many patients will reflect on a time when they found us at their lowest ebb. Yeah. And maybe what we did didn't improve everything, but they won't forget the steps that they took within our clinics that enabled them to get back where they are now. And I think that's powerful. So I completely agree with you that these things can be incredibly uh, powerful. And that's why it brings me right back down to the first thing we started with is we're in the best position as aesthetic doctors to offer patients this solution or, or offer patients different solutions 
for so many things that bother them. And I think we're only touching the, ice, uh, the tip of the iceberg. There's so many things as we branch out that we'll be able to add to the toolkit that we already have. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that sort of leads us nicely on to maybe our last question before we let you sign off. You've uh, probably got some things you need to do today and Jake and I need to get to sleep <laughs> at some point, but it's been lovely talking to you. What do you think you'll be doing in 10 years from now? Speaking of 10 years younger in 10 days, what are you going to be doing in 10 years? Are you going to move back to Sydney? Or are you going to be delivering some, you know, treatments, you know, remotely via some sort of AI or maybe Elon Musk <laughs> well, will have to come up with something, another business model that will be in the aesthetics <laughs> industry? Well, that's the great thing about life because forget what I'm going to be doing in 10 years. I can't tell you what I'm going to be doing in 10 days, right? <laughs> you know, that's the pace of life, isn't it? When we, when we look back, if I think, what was I doing in 2011? In 2011, I hadn't ever stepped on the stage um, for Allegan or anything like that. So everything I've done in, on, a, on a global capacity has happened within that time frame. So for me to know what I'm going to be doing is difficult. The one thing I'm very determined is I'm going to be doing what makes me happy. You know, I choose happiness. So I'm not, I'm not going to be doing something just because I've found myself caught on some sort of hamster wheel and I can't get off it. I'm only going to be doing things because I'm passionate about them. Um, there's definitely a pipe dream I have, which is I would love to offer exactly what I'm already offering, but in nicer surroundings, not for me, but for the patient. So what I mean is I love being in central London, but it's not always conducive to some of the things that I believe in, in terms of stress management and so forth. So, you know, there's these famous clinics around the world, like the Lanzerhof or the Viva Maya in Europe. And it would be a nice pipe dream to be able to do exactly what we're doing, but in a more um, exotic location. Sydney comes to mind. <laughs> you, know, but, uh, you know, I've got a love affair with Sydney, as you know. Um, but you know, there's places all over the world that, that offer that. I will always be in education. I love educating, whether it's patients or colleagues. Um, that will, pr And I think in 10 years, I could imagine doing a little bit less clinical work and more education um, over that time. But, you know, I want to be seeing patients right up to the point I retire, uh, but just really embracing the whole lifestyle aspect of it and, you know, really enjoying all that, constantly learning, and not just learning medicine, not just learning nutrition, but the good things, um, cooking, sport, art, all of those things. So, yeah, yeah um, I can't tell you, David, but um, all I can say is that if you ask me on a podcast in 10 years, hopefully I'll be able to report back and say, whatever <laughs> I'm doing, I'm very happy to be doing it. Yeah. Well, they say do what makes you happy, right? And if you f enjoy what yeah. you're doing, you'll, you'll never work a day in your life. And it, fe it. feels like you've uh, you found your calling. You've, you've sort of re that, reached that point in your life where you've... You're, you're achieving what you want to achieve and you've combined your passions and you've had a, you know, an epiphany and you've, you've made some major changes in your life and now you want to share that with your, with your patients and everyone that's around you. Yeah. Yeah, I think couldn't have put it better myself. Now, Tabs, I really appreciate, um, you know, kind of quite a, a deep and kind of unusual chat in some ways. For some of our listeners, it's more hardcore aesthetics and hopefully we've given people a little bit more of a, a flavour about approaching things differently, maybe thinking about their own health uh, or their patient's health and, and just thinking a little bit more outside the box. Um, so, yeah, so thank you for joining us and uh, hope uh, things go well for your, well, your opening. You've been open in just a couple of weeks, you said? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, thank you. And, um, you know, 
just to say that also to colleagues who may have found this maybe a bit surreal chat, I, I would say exactly what you say, that think about it not so much as traditional aesthetics, because you can get a bit overloaded by constantly hearing about injection technique, anatomy, etc. The idea here is to understand that we are in charge of this field. You know, we are, we are the guardians of aesthetic medicine, and we can take it in any direction we choose to. So I really hope that people understand there's a real beautiful opportunity here to um, add things to our daily lives, to add things to our working practices that really stimulate us, that we enjoy, and ultimately will result in us just um, having a much better work-life balance as well. Yeah. Um, well, do you want to remind us how people can get in touch with you if I'd like to uh, have some of those discussions? Well, that's very <laughs> kind of you. There's two ways of getting hold of me. One is um, my email, yep. um, tp at phyclinic.com. Probably the best is Instagram. I'm at Dr. Tapan P. Yeah. And um, that's probably the, probably the easiest way of getting hold of me. Perfect, mate. And j- let's just remind people, how can we sponsor you, even mm-hmm. though it's retrospective? So if you go onto my a profile page of the Instagram. Mm-hmm. The link is on there. So it's the only clickable link on my homepage of awesome. the Instagram. Everyone, dig d- dig deep into your pockets <laughs> generously. Tapan's absolutely exhausted. He's <laughs> well, still you recovering. Don't have to dig yeah. deep. You know, you, it, I would rather lots of people dig quite shallow than one or two people <laughs> dig deep. So yeah. because, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Well, thanks again, mate. We'll, we'll catch up soon and uh, good luck with everything in the UK. Thanks, Tapan. Thank you very much, guys. It's been thoroughly enjoyable. Thanks. See you later, mate. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.